Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Whatever happens, remember, God is still working on you. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. Some time ago, we began a series of messages through the book of Philippians based upon this theme, Whatever Happens, which is based upon itself the key verse in the book, which is Philippians 127. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm taping this today in my home in Nashville, and if you were here, I would show you some of the oil paintings that I've collected. Most of them are by street artists, and not many of them cost very much at all, and none of them are very expensive. But I love my oil paintings. It comes from a habit that I developed years ago when a friend of mine, who was an interior designer, told me to hang paintings throughout my house. She said they were easy on the eye and they gave every room a sense of class and comfort. Well, Katrina used to roll her eyes when I came home with another painting, but then when we traveled together, we had a great deal of fun finding an oil painting from a local artist or a street vendor, and we have little works of art here from all over the world. Every artist works with three primary colors. We learned about this in grade school. Red, yellow, and blue. They cannot be mixed from other colors, but they are the source of all of the other colors. Mixing yellow and blue makes green, for example. Green is a secondary color. There are also tertiary colors, and then you can make all kinds of shades of colors by blending tertiary colors with secondary colors or primary colors, and there is a scientific and mathematical genius behind all of it, the beauty of the colors that God has created. Well, let me ask you a question. What are the three primary colors of the human soul? What are the three different tones that make our lives a masterpiece from God? Well, on three different occasions in his 13 letters, Paul put together three special attitudes or activities, and I'm going to show them to you. First, Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 7, and 18 is stating it very succinctly. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 9, and 10, we see it this way. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all of the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Notice thanksgiving and joy and prayerfulness 
And now we see this again in the paragraph that we are coming to in Philippians chapter 1. And if you're able to have your Bible, you may want to read with me verses 3 through 8. Philippians 1, 3 through 8. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So three times in his 13 books, the Apostle Paul tells us of three attitudes that should always be on the oil palette of the Christian as we go about painting our world. We should have within us the colors of joyfulness or cheerfulness, prayerfulness, and thanksgiving or thankfulness or gratitude. I first noticed this trio of attitudes because of Dr. Gordon Fee's wonderful commentary on Philippians. He wrote, Paul again gives evidence that prayer, thanksgiving, and joy go together in a kind of indissolvable union. So there is thankfulness, and there is prayerfulness, and there is cheerfulness. I believe that there is a very real spiritual science involving these three attitudes and activities, but I'm not a good enough spiritual scientist to thoroughly analyze and understand it. The best that I can try to do is to link the relationships as we see them occurring here in this first paragraph of the body of the book of Philippians. Now, believe it or not, what I read to you is one long sentence in the Greek. As he sometimes did, Paul became so excited as he wrote that he didn't stop for punctuation, as it were, or for pauses. He went right at it. The New International Version turns it into four different sentences and two brief paragraphs, but the translators do a good job in trying to simplify it all for us. So let's just plunge into verse 3 as Paul begins with thanksgiving. He says, I thank God my God, every time I remember you. Just circle two words there, my and you. I thank my God every time I remember you. This little word, my, in English, it's an adjectival pronoun modifying the word God. Every word in Scripture is important, and Paul could have said, I thank God. But he said, I thank my God. He was practicing the presence of God. He thought of God as very personal and very near. He is not just God, but he is my God. Paul himself explained this phrase in a way in Exodus chapter, or rather in the book of Acts, chapter 27, beginning with verse 22. He was on the deck of a storm-tossed boat in a stormy sea, and he shouted this message of hope to all of the passengers and sailors who were terrified. He said, but now I urge you to keep your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, 
an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So notice how Paul identified himself. He said, I belong to God, and he is the one I serve. My God to whom I belong and whom I serve. He is my God. He is your God if you belong to him and you serve him. And then there is that other word, you. Now, this word, as small as it is, had a big impact on me as I began to study it. I read several years ago about a missionary, I think that it was Amy Carmichael, who kept the Thanksgiving list alongside her prayer list, and every day she wrote down something new for which she was thankful. And I decided to do the same thing, and I've been doing that for a number of years. Every morning, I will add something new to the list. Dear Lord, thank you for this or that. It could be as simple as a hot shower or as important as a good lab result from the doctor. But as I studied this and read some of the commentaries, I noticed that Paul tended to thank God for people more than for things. Let's go back to the story of Paul in a shipwreck. The ship crashed into the sandbar on the coast of Malta, and everyone was saved. And when the winter passed, they caught another ship, and finally, Paul made it to Rome. And it says in Acts 28 and verse 15, The brothers and sisters from Rome heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God, and he was encouraged. Now, you can notice this all the way through Paul's letters. I'd never seen it before. There's no doubt that he was grateful for all of the blessings that God gave, but most of his expressions of thanksgiving were for certain people. And when I went back and looked at my thanksgiving list that I keep, most of the items were things or events. And since I noticed this, well, I've taken a little more time to list two items every day for which I'm thankful, a what, and a who. And sometimes, of course, I try to let that person know. It can be tremendously encouraging to let people know what they have meant to you and that you've thanked God for them. In the early 20th century, there was a Methodist pastor. He was a very well-known preacher and evangelist named William Strigger. He preached in tents and wrote a newspaper column. One day, he sat around a table with people who were complaining about everything, and he got up and left the table determined to be more diligent to develop a thankful attitude and to thank God not only for things but for people. The first person who flashed into his mind was an English teacher who had first inspired in him a love for literature and poetry. He felt she had done a lot to prepare him for his later ministry, and that evening he sat down and wrote a letter to her, thanking her for her contribution to his life. A few days later, he received this letter in return. She addressed him using his childhood name. My Willie, she said, I can't tell you how much your note meant to me. I am in my 80s, living alone in a small room, cooking my own meals, lonely, 
like the last leaf of autumn that linger behind. You'll be interested to know that I taught in school for more than 50 years, and yours is the first note of appreciation I have ever received. It came on a blue, cold morning, and it cheered me as nothing has done in many years. Well, there is a lot of power in that one sentence. I thank my God every time I remember you. That kind of gratitude doesn't come naturally. It takes training. It takes practice. We have to work on it all the time. We have to study and put it into practice. If you ever want to change your personality, then look up every time the Bible uses the term thanks or thanksgiving or gratitude or grateful and make a serious study of it. Write down the verses, study the context, track down the cross-references, systematize them, choose some of them to memorize, do a thorough study of everything the Bible says about being thankful. Now, I confess that I haven't done this yet. It's on my to-do list, but Nancy Lee DeMoss did, and right out of it, she wrote, wrote a book, and I read it last week, and it had a big impact on me. She said that before her study into this subject, she had thought of herself as a grateful person, but her ongoing study of the subject of gratitude and thanksgiving in the Bible was a very eye-opening and personal experience, and it forced her to learn to begin to train her heart, she said, to respond to all of life with a thankful spirit. The British poet George Herbert prayed, Thou hast given so much to me, one more thing please give to me, a grateful heart. And so Paul begins here by thanking God for the Philippians. I thank my God for all of you. And now we come to prayerfulness. Alongside thankfulness comes prayerfulness. He goes on to say, and all of my prayers for all of you. And look down at verse 19 very quickly of the first chapter. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So the prayers between Paul and the Philippians, and they were many miles apart, some in Philippi and Paul in Rome, but they were flying back and forth in both directions. Just after World War II, when the whole world was still wondering what had happened, Frank Laubach, who was a very interesting Christian thinker and worker in those days, wrote an urgent book about prayer that flew across the nation and impacted millions of people. It became, well, we would say today, it went viral for a while. And in this book, he called on every believer on earth to unite in prayer and in intercession for one another and for our leaders. He said, only this can help us to rebuild the world. And he gave several examples of how we can learn to pray with greater frequency for others. He suggested that when reading of a world leader in the news, we should pause for 10 seconds to pray for that person. He encouraged people in the churches to keep their eyes open while the preacher was given the sermon, but to be praying for him silently all the time that he was expounding the scripture. Laubach said that he had trained himself to throw a cloak of prayer around the people he met during the day. He silently prayed for them as they approached him. Often on the trains, he would throw the cloak of prayer, he said, around the person sitting in front of him, though they never knew it, although sometimes they would turn to him 
and look at him curiously, as though they felt his prayers. He told of one man who wrote out a prayer every evening, he offered it to God, and then he threw the written prayer in the fireplace and watched as it burned, and as the smoke ascended to heaven like the incense of the Old Testament. And he told of another man who acquired a clock that his brother had rescued from a sinking ship during the Second World War. It was made to strike on the quarter hour, and this man had a set of prayer cards with different ministries that he supported every time the clock chimed. He would offer a brief prayer for the ministry on the top card and then put that card on the bottom of the pack so that he was circulating through his prayer list every quarter hour. Well, the point is, Labak was urging people to find ways of putting into practice this pattern of praying without ceasing. He had a very vivid way of putting it. He said, quote, enough people praying enough will release into the human bloodstream the mightiest medicine in the universe, for we shall be the channels through whom God can exert his infinite power. Well, that is something like Paul is saying here. He said, I am praying for you every time I think about you. I am praying and counting my blessings. And as you pray for me, I'll receive God's provision of the Spirit, and what has happened to me will turn out for good. Through prayer, we will release into our own bloodstreams the mightiest medicine known to exist in the universe. So there we have in this opening paragraph, we have thankfulness, we have prayerfulness, and that brings us to the third primary color that should tone up our souls, and that is cheerfulness. He said, in all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. This is the first of 16 times that Paul uses the word or the group of words for joy in his letter. Some people think that joy is the very theme of his letter. I don't think that it's the most dominant idea in the book of Philippians, but it's certainly a constantly recurring thought. I can't tell you how many times during periods of discouragement in the past, I've gotten a copy of the Bible, turned to Philippians, and read all the way through it. It's only four chapters, circling or highlighting every reference to joy and to rejoicing. We'll see these unfold as we go through the letter in our series of studies in Philippians on this series of podcasts. But for now, let's go on with this particular paragraph. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word partnership is the familiar Greek term koinonia, which focuses on the long, enduring nature of their fellowship and partnership and relationship with one another. I think this word koinonia in this context includes the fruitfulness of his original visit to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. We spent a couple of the early podcasts listening and studying the background of this book, and if you haven't heard them, you may want to go back and give them a listen. But I think the word koinonia here also refers to their frequent correspondence and to their financial gifts to them through the years and to their joint endeavors in sharing the gospel and to the long-term friendship that Paul had enjoyed with the Philippians over the years. And that brings us to this famous 
verse 6. Paul was praying with joy and cheerfulness and thankfulness because he knew that God was still at work in them. The Lord was working in the Philippian believers as he is working in us. Look at this again. I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you. What is this good work? What good work had God started in Philippians or in the lives of the Philippian believers? Well, some commentators say that it only refers to the financial partnership that they extended to Paul. He was thanking them for their financial koinonia, the fellowship of their financial support, their fellowship in helping him finance his work, and he was certain that God would lead them to continue that. But it seems to me, and I think to many commentators, this is too narrow an interpretation. I believe this verse means just what we feel like it should mean, that God had started doing something in Lydia in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. He'd started doing something in the servant girl. He had started doing something in the prisoners and in the jailer. He started doing something in the lives of those who came to Christ as Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy shared the gospel in Philippi. And this work was still continuing, and it will continue until we all finally stand before God in perfection. Now, there is a process to this. I remember the day in college when a classmate sat down with me, and he drew a little chart. That chart had three columns. This one, he said, is justification. That's what happened when you received Christ as your Savior. That's your past, when God saved you from the penalty of your sins. On the other side of the page, he drew a column and he said, this is glorification. This is what will happen in the future when you are raptured or resurrected. God will save you from the very presence of sin. But in between justification and glorification, there is this process called sanctification. That's the process that happens to us in this life as we grow in Christ and we, we are being saved from the power of sin. Now, when you put all of these three together, you have the totality of salvation. We were saved. That happened to us. I have been saved. That's justification. I will be saved. I'll be saved forever from the very presence of sin that's glorification, but I am being saved now from the ongoing power of sin, and that is sanctification. Now, you see, all three aspects are in this verse 6. He who began a good work in you, justification, will carry it on, sanctification, to completion in the day when Christ comes again, glorification. Well, I've never forgotten that little chart but recently I've made one change to it. I want to swap out the word sanctification and use the word Christification. Right now, those of us who know Jesus as Savior have something going on in 
our lives, and I'm going to call it Christification. We are becoming more and more like him. And the Apostle Paul is going to talk a lot about this in the book of Philippians. For example, Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 12, and 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Philippians 4, verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. All of this has to do with Christian growth with becoming more like Christ. All of this has to do with him carrying on to completion what he has begun with us and what he will complete on the day when we see Jesus. Ray Ortland wrote a column for the Gospel Coalition in which he recalled the day his father gave him a Bible for his 17th birthday. And on the first page, the opening page or title page, his dad wrote, Bud, nothing could be greater than to have a son, a son who loves the Lord and walks with him. Your mother and I have found this book our dearest treasure. Be a student of the Bible, and your life will be full of blessings. We love you, Dad. And beneath the word Dad was the reference Philippians 1.6. The first thing Ray did was to open to Philippians 1, chapter 1 and verse 6. He said in his column, Apart from the words my dad spoke to me the day he led me to Christ, what he wrote above was his greatest statement to me ever. It is always proven true. I can hardly read it today without weeping. The Lord, who began a good work in us, is still doing it. He hasn't stopped. We aren't done for yet. I don't know about you, but there is one person in this world that I have more trouble with than anybody else, and it is Mr. M.E. Dude. M.E. has a temper. He says stupid things. He lets irritations get to him. He wants to do things he shouldn't, see things he shouldn't, think things he shouldn't. M.E. requires a lot of spiritual maintenance. This character can absolutely drive me crazy. But by God's grace, if I have anything to do with it, and I do, M.E. is going to become more like H.I.M. Philippians 1.6 and the other 33,000 verses in the Bible have made all the difference, slowly but surely. I think I'm beginning to learn M.E., Mr. M.E. Dude, is beginning to learn the primary colors of thankfulness, prayerfulness, and cheerfulness. And the reason that we can be thankful and prayerful and cheerful is because the one who began a good work in us is carrying it on to completion. One day, Ruth Graham was driving down the road and she saw a sign that said, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. She said, That's what I want on my tombstone. And if you go to the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, and see the gravestones of Billy and Ruth, you'll read these words on her tombstone. End of construction. Thank you for your patience.
Well, if you know Christ, you're under construction, and you can say, The work thou hast begun in me will by thy grace be fully done. Or in the words of a little song that we used to sing, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. He's still working on you too. So be patient and keep growing. Well, thanks for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing by Jared Brummett. Print editing by Sherry Anderson. And it's Luke Tyler who helps me post this blog on my website, Robert J. Morgan, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. Thank you for listening, and may God be with you until we meet again.